please take your copies of God's Word and turn to 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, chapter 3. This is toward the back of your New Testaments. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there should be copies in the uh, the shelf right in front of you, just below the pew. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please feel free to take that home as our gift to you. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. Let's read together verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, give us faith to believe in you, uh, the author of life, the author of revelation, the author of your word. Give us faith to believe in the Holy Spirit, who we ask to be among us even now as we consider your word together. Give us faith to believe in the unseen Christ, in whom is all our hope for salvation. Give us faith to believe that there is a devil. Give us faith to believe in a spiritual realm. Give us faith to believe in spiritual warfare, warfare that we are engaged in even now as this sermon is preached. Give us by faith insight into realities yet unseen as we consider your word this morning. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, This sermon is meant to explain what that phrase means. Uh, What does it mean that the Son of God appeared? What does it mean that He appeared to destroy the works of the devil? Uh, We're in our Advent series. We take normally about four Sundays every year around this time to meditate in a special way on the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus Christ. And this year, the title we've given to the series is, I Have Come, and we're considering various statements that expressly speak to the reason why Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world. Last week, we considered the meaning of Advent for sinners uh, from Luke 5, verses 27 through 32. There, uh, the Lord says, on the occasion of Levi's conversion and the gathering in his home, Uh, with tax collectors and sinners, he says to the Pharisees, I have come not to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. He says, the well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Why did Jesus come into the world? He came for sick people. He came for sinners. If there was no sickness, if there was no sin, the Son of God would never come. But because there was sickness and sin, He did come, that He might introduce people to Himself and draw them to Himself. This morning, I want to explore the meaning of Advent, the incarnation of Christ, for our sanctification as Christians. What does the coming of Jesus into the world have to do with you, Christian, becoming holier, becoming more righteous, becoming more like your Lord? 
So we're dropping down into the middle of the epistle of 1 John. I want to explain a number of things by way of context about 1 John, and then I want us to consider 1 John 3, 4 through 10, so the wider context of verse 8. I want us to expound that passage, uh, but the main emphasis I want to be on verse 8. Now, we won't get to emphasize that text until toward the end of this message, but considering context and considering verses 4 through 10 will be important for us if we're to properly understand what it is that John is saying about our Lord's appearing in this verse. So, we'll consider the passage, verses 4 through 10, in just a moment, uh, but let me highlight a few matters first by way of context. Uh, the apostle John, uh, that is the son of Zebedee, we saw him a couple of weeks ago as we uh, wound down our series of Matthew for the year. We plan to bring it back in January. Uh, we saw John when he was called as a disciple in Matthew chapter 4. This is that John. Uh, the apostle John wrote the letter of 1 John. He was probably in Ephesus when he wrote the letter. Uh, it is late in his life, uh, probably the mid-80s or even as early as, or late as the early 90s. Uh, we don't know precisely to whom John is writing. That's a mystery to us. He's writing uh, to Christians, to churches, uh, but we don't know exactly where those churches are located. And we learn as we read 1 John uh, that John is concerned in this letter with a cluster of doctrinal errors uh, that are being propounded by a network of people who are harassing these Christians to whom John is writing. Uh, some of these opponents uh, may have been false teachers in the technical sense, but whoever they were, uh, these opponents, they were professing believers who were propounding errant views on a host of issues. It's likely that these were men that were well known to John himself, uh, men that perhaps even defected from John's own church, if we're to imagine John in Ephesus at this time. There are men who defected from his own ministry, from the gospel that he had been preaching. And these false professors, these opponents of the apostolic gospel, they're threatening to influence these Christians to whom John is writing. So they're, they're known to John and probably known to those Christians to whom John is writing. And John will say of them in chapter 2, verse 19, that they went out from us, but they were not of us. I've been disappointed to see how flippantly at times Christians will use that phrase. They went out from us, but they were not of us. In its original usage, it described people who literally denied that Jesus was the Messiah, people who denied the incarnation itself, people who were genuinely apostate. So, we shouldn't imagine these are people who disagreed with John over secondary issues. These weren't people who just for one reason or another changed churches. It's a way to describe people who are lost. Now, these are people who went out from John, who were decidedly of a different spirit than him. They embraced a different gospel. It was not the one that he and the other apostles had taught. They were in immense error, the kind of error that shatters all semblance of any meaningful Christian fellowship. They're not our brothers and sisters, uh, these who are harassing you. Now, what were the errors that they were teaching, these opponents, these false Professors, it's hard to synthesize all the various threads in John's gospel. We don't get like a, a clear, coherent sort of theology that they believe, but there are certain things that are very clear, certain errors that they were teaching that are, are pretty obvious, I think, as we read through the epistle of 1 John. I'll just mention three of them. Uh, first of all, most importantly and most fundamentally, uh, they were teaching that Jesus was not the Christ, uh, the Messiah. They did not believe this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who John and the other apostles followed and who they preached, they did not believe that that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And we read about this in 1 John 2, 19 
through 26. Second, they were teaching that the Son of God never came in human flesh at all. He never came as a human man. He did not have a human nature, and he's not coming at any time as a human man. They denied the doctrine of the humanity of the Messiah. They denied the incarnation. 1 John 4 makes this plain. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. The spirits are not like kind of ethereal beings that don't have bodies. It's talking about people, uh, people with spirits. Test those spirits, people who say false things to you. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Apparently, these opponents, these false teachers, were denying the incarnation itself, that Jesus had come in human flesh. And this is one of the reasons why the Apostle John will emphasize at so many points in this epistle of the physical nature of Christ. He opens his epistle in this way. Uh, he says, that which was from the beginning, uh, that which we heard, uh, which our eyes looked upon, uh, which we have seen, which we have touched with our hands, that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you. We touched him, we heard him, we saw him. He inhabited a human body. He was the God-man, and we're witnesses to these things. Uh, this is what the false professors denied, but John wants to make sure these Christians understand. He came in human flesh. God was indeed incarnate, is indeed incarnate. And then the third error, and this is most important for our time this morning, and I'm not sure how exactly to state this. I'm not sure exactly how the false teachers would have articulated this, but they were propounding a series of errors related to the whole subject of conduct, behavior, uh, ethics, how it is that followers of God are to live. Uh, so they did not think uh, righteousness of life and conduct was necessary for believers. Uh, they did not believe how we live is important. Perhaps they had a kind of Gnostic view that kind of there's this dichotomy between the body and the soul, and so we have this sort of spiritual existence whereby we know God, and what happens in the body and in the flesh is just unimportant. So whether or not you continue in sin, whether you live in sin, that really doesn't matter. You can know God genuinely and live in sinful ways. You could know God sincerely and yet be indifferent to righteous conduct and righteous living. And this is why those of you familiar with 1 John will appreciate so often John is emphasizing the implications of conversion and the new birth for how we live. John gives us all these tests. Uh, related to our conduct, how we're to live, how that's an indication of what is true of us. How do you know you know God? Well, by the fact that we love one another, by the fact that we hate our sin, by the fact that we love righteousness and that we love His Word and we keep His commandments. In other words, John wants to signpost loud and clear, your conduct, Christian, matters. How you live matters to God, and you cannot in any real sense know God and live in unrighteousness and in sin. And that is the issue that John is going to confront in our passage this morning, in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. So let's consider the passage now. I want to open up this passage again, special emphasis on verse 8. Let's read together 1 John 3, 4 through 10, and maybe you can pick out now with that context uh, John speaking to this error that was present among these Christians. 1 John 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Maybe before I give you my headings for how we'll break down this passage, I simply want to state a summary statement of what I think is John's main point in this passage. What do we have here in 1 John 3, 4 through 10? What is the point of this passage? Here it is. This passage is a passionate call to righteous, pure, and holy Christian living grounded in the believer's saving union with Christ and the gospel itself. I'll say that again. This passage is a passionate call to righteous, pure, and holy Christian living grounded in the believer's saving union with Christ and the gospel itself. So here are three basic points uh, to frame our time this morning. We're going to see there's a main requirement or expectation John has of these Christians, and then he's going to ground it in two doctrines or two realities. The main thing he's calling these Christians to, and then the two realities that he grounds this requirement, this expectation in. So three points this morning. Number one, Christians do not continue in sin. Christians do not continue in sin. Look again, if you would, at verse 4. John writes, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What is true of those who make a practice of sinning, according to this passage, who keep on sinning, who continue sinning? What's true of them? Verse 4 says they're lawless. Verse 6 says, they don't abide in Christ. They haven't seen Him. They don't know Him. Verse 8, their father is the devil. Verse 9, they have not been born of God and His seed doesn't abide in them. That's quite a series of indictments. And it reflects the seriousness about this issue for John. You think Christians can just keep on sinning, continue in sin. I'm trying to emphasize to you that cannot be tolerated. According to what we confess and what we believe, we cannot tolerate the perspective that Christians could just continue on, lives unchanged, living in sin, continuing in sin, keeping on sinning. Now, there's a big problem here we have to address, a big, big problem, and some of you immediately felt it as soon as I read the passage. What's the problem? The problem is uh, there's not a single person reading these verses this morning 
uh, who is not a sinner. None of you reading these verses this morning uh, have gone a day without sinning. All of you have sinned today. I have sinned today. Uh, So where does that place us in light of this passage? It's not just that we've sinned in the past. We sin in the present. So do we come under the indictments of John's writing here? Does that mean all of us receive these judgments, these condemnations, whether we've trusted in Christ or not? Another way we could ask the question, does John mean to say that those who are in Christ, who have God's seed abiding in them, who have been born of God, does he mean to tell us that such people never sin? Is that how these verbs are to be interpreted? How should we understand this? To solve this dilemma, I think we need to start with what John has said elsewhere in this epistle. Because if you would look back at 1 John 1, turn to 1 John chapter 1, just a page or two over, and let's see what John says there about remaining sin in the believer. Look if you would at verse 5. There John writes, this is the message We have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now listen to this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if anyone here says, I'm a Christian, but I I don't have any sin, you're a liar. It's just not true. We're deceiving ourselves. We're self-deceived. If we think as Christians, we don't have sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. As a Christian, not only do you sin, when you sin, there is provision for you. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, if you would, at chapter 2, verse 1, reading on. My children, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't want you to sin. And what I've just said is not licensed for you to think, well, now I'll just go out and sin. John said, hey, we're sinners. We got 1 John 1, 9, so we're good. Now he's saying, I'm writing so that you wouldn't sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. You appreciate the logic here. Uh, John's saying your life has changed. You've walked into the light. You're to walk in the light as he is in the light. Doesn't mean that you'll never sin. And if you do sin as a Christian, there is provision for you. But there is an attitudinal shift in the Christian. Though we sin, we hate our sin and we confess our sin and we seek to mortify our sin. And we seek now to follow the Lord's commandments. And if indeed we have fruitfulness in that, success in that, that's an indication that we've been born of God. Not that we keep God's commandments perfectly, but our pattern of life has changed. Our walk has changed. Our practice has changed. We now hate sin and love righteousness. 
were once we loved sin and hated righteousness. We now love light and seek to eschew darkness and expose the sinful works of darkness. Where once we love darkness rather than light. I think that's a balanced understanding of what John is saying here. So now back to our passage. How then are we to understand what John is saying? What is this category he's working with, those who continue sinning or those who keep on sinning? And the answer is this. In 1 John 3, 6, verse 6 in our passage, it says, no one who abides in him, and then the ESV translators have said, keeps on sinning. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Some say continue in sin, make a practice of sinning. Some just say uh, no one who abides in him sins. And that's not an inappropriate Translation, the verb translated in the ESV, keeps on sinning, is a present tense verb indicating ongoing, continuous action. It's the idea of continuing in sin, to keep on sinning. You were living a certain way, and you just continue to live in the same way. This was your conduct, this was your behavior, and you're just continuing on in it. You just keep on doing it ongoing, continuous action. So this is the key. John's point is that it is impossible. It is unthinkable. It is a contradiction for the Christian to be genuinely saved, to be genuinely united to Christ, to be genuinely born again, and yet to live a life that is nothing more than an unchanged continuation of the same sinful life and patterns that marked his life before he became a Christian. His point is not that Christians never sin at all, but that their whole attitude towards sin and their response to sin is now different. They begin to put their sin to death. They begin to sin less. And when he does sin, the Christian confesses his sin. He hates his sin. He seeks to mortify his sin. His patterns of life begin to change. He begins to experience more and more success in subduing sin in his life. And so he fights sin with increasing vigilance with increasing victory. In becoming a Christian, John wants to get across a kind of metamorphosis begins to take place such that our conduct really begins to change. And so you might think of various statements in the New Testament that get this across. I appreciate Paul's statement in Ephesians 4, I think it is, let him who stole steal no longer. So so if if you take that statement and put it within the framework of this passage, I think John would say that if there was someone who gave themselves to stealing, that's how they were living before they abided in Christ, before they were born of God, and and then after they professed that those realities took place, that they were converted, that they were born again, and they just continue on stealing as though nothing changed, nothing happened, they would fall under the indictment of this passage. That's continuing in sin. That's, That's to keep on sinning, to make a practice of sinning. This was your practice. This is how you lived. This is how you walked. And after you say you were converted and born of God, nothing's changed. Uh, But to the one who was given over to stealing, then comes to faith in Christ and repents of sin and turns away from sin, what's to happen in that person's life? That old way of living, that practice is done, it's gone, it's over. And he now lives a new walk of righteousness. He walks in the light. Let him whose soul steal no longer. Now, does that mean there's no situation ever that arises in 30, 40 years of him following Christ that He never once or twice stole. That's not the point. The point is the general pattern and practice of life. Has it changed? That's what John is talking about in this passage when he says uh, that those who keep on sinning show that they don't know Christ at all. 
that they haven't been born of God. Many people here, I could even mention, who have given testimony at our Sunday evening gatherings or on Sunday mornings in the context of baptism, your testaments to what John is saying here, where there was a former pattern of life, sin struggles that dominated and regulated your life, even motivated how you lived. And you are evidence even this morning of the radical change that has taken place. And it would be true of you. You don't continue in sin. You don't keep on sinning in those ways that marked your life before you came to Christ. Christians do not continue in sin. That is point number one. Okay, but why? Why, on an existential, experiential level, do Christians not continue in the same habits and patterns and practices, sinful habits, patterns, and practices that marked their lives before? Why is it that way? John wants to tell us, and that leads to points two and three. Point number two now. First, Christians do not continue in sin. Point number two, Christians do not continue in sin because they have been united to Christ. They do not continue to why. What's changed the situation? They've been united to the Son of God. Look at the passage again, beginning in verse 5. You know that He, that is Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. You think you could just live in sin? Don't you know why Jesus came? to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. In the person of Jesus, there's perfect, unmitigated, unalloyed, moral purity. There's not an ounce of sin. And He demonstrated this in His life. We read in various passages that God made Him who knew no sin. That is, He never sinned. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The writer of the Hebrews says, he was all, in all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. Uh, we looked at this in Matthew 4 as he's tempted by the devil, and we talked about how important it is that Jesus not for a moment give in to temptation, because then he'd be disqualified to be our Savior. What well, John's saying here in our passage, in him there is no sin at all. You won't find any in Jesus. Verse 6, no one... Now, now the, the Greek doesn't say this, but I think logically we could say this. I think there could be a therefore before verse 6. There's no sin in Jesus, and I think, John, the thought is, therefore, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning in the way I just explained a moment ago. What's the idea? Jesus, with whom believers are united, there's no sin in Him. Therefore, how could it be that those who abide in Him sin? So, it would be helpful now to think of the gospel that John wrote and what he said in John 15 about the vine and the branches. He talks there about abiding in Christ. The Lord calls the disciples to abide in Him and to let His Word abide in them, to abide in His love, and the image is that of the relationship between a branch and a vine. There's an organic unity between a branch and a vine. The branch of the tree or the branch of the vine is drawing on the vine as its source. All its life and its nutrients, everything, comes from the source, who is the vine. Well, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. 
If, if Jesus has no sin in him and we abide in him and are united to him, and it's in him that we draw all of our life, he's our source, well, then how could it be that we live on in sin with impunity? How can we just live on in sin if we're truly united to Christ, if we abide in him and are connected to the source of life and righteousness? Well, that should have impact on how our conduct manifests itself, how we behave, how we live. That's the logic. No one who abides in him, verse 6, keeps on sinning. Uh, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever, listen to how he puts it together, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He is the source of all righteousness. We who abide in him through union and communion with him, our conduct begins to change. We become more externally righteous. This is not talking about like imputed righteousness or something like that. This is talking about righteousness of life, actions and conduct and behavior in the individual Christian. John is emphasizing in these verses the organic link between a true saving union and communion with Christ and how a Christian lives and walks, particularly with reference to sin. John is establishing a link between union with Christ and Christian conduct. That is who we are and what we do. Who we are united to Christ, in Christ, abiding in Christ, and what we do, how we live, how we act. And his simple point is, if we are in truth united to Christ, if we are born of God, it will change the way that we live. We will not sin if we are truly united to Him. We'll keep His commandments. We'll walk in righteousness just as He is righteous. We'll walk in the light as He is in the light because we're united to the light. We're abiding in the one in whom there is all light. And John goes further with this in verses 8 through 10. If you look at those verses with me, he sets up a kind of comparison and contrast between those who practice righteousness and those who practice sin. What can we learn from people about their conduct? We could learn who they're united to. We could learn who their father is. We could learn what their source of life is. That's the argument he's going to make. Verse 8, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Believers are righteous as he is righteous. Uh, Those who have the devil as their father, who are of him, the text says, it's manifest in their conduct, in their practice. They sin because he sins. They have a different kind of connection to him. So on the one end, if you're united to Christ, John's saying righteousness will mark your life. Purity will mark your life. Obedience and fellowship will mark your life. On the other hand, if you are of the devil, if you are of his seed, well, then sin will dominate your life. Wickedness and unrighteousness will pervade your actions and your thoughts and your words because you are of the devil. He's setting up a kind of comparison and contrast, a kind of antithesis. And this is really evident in verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. By this, by this, by this it is evident. What's John talking about there? What's the this? It's not what they say with their mouth. 
it, it is not acceptable to say that as long as you say the right things about God, you say the right things about Jesus, or you sign a card, or whatever, that you're automatically right with God. That's an indication. If you say you're a Christian, well, then you are a Christian. No, how is that profession vindicated, according to this passage? By this, it is evident. What is the this? It's our conduct. It's how we live. It's how we walk. Friends, it is not inappropriate to test the authenticity of one's faith based on how they conduct themselves. Okay, you're not, you're not being some sort of pharisaical judge over people's hearts if you simply observe their conduct and draw a conclusion about who they love and with whom they are united. John is stipulating this as a condition, as an indication, as a vindication of whether or not someone is a Christian. By this you will know who's born of God and who's of the devil. You'll be vindicated on how they live, how they act, how they conduct themselves. Is it in righteousness and light and moral purity? Is it that they're abiding in Christ? Or is it that they continue on in sin? It's one of the reasons why in our church constitution, we require that all those who would be members of our church uh, must confess their faith in Christ and give evidence of a transformed life. That's not an inappropriate stipulation. It's this very thing that will provide evidence of to whom one's allegiance belongs. By this it is evident who are the children of God. Your conduct, your walk, your life is a measure of the one to whom you are united because sin has its root in Satan, righteousness has its root in Christ. You make a practice of sinning, John is saying you're not really united to Christ. You don't abide in Him. Now, this is crucial before we leave this point and go to our final point. It is crucial to get the order right. Okay, so it is saving union with Christ and new birth that precipitates change in conduct. It's change in behavior after an antecedent work of God. God does something in the human heart, and our conduct and behavior follows. You can get this wrong if you just read verse 7 out of context. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And you think, okay, well, there it is. If I do right, I'll be right. That is not the order of the gospel. Doing never leads to being. Being leads to doing. God must do a work first, and our conduct follows. And this is exactly how John will reason in verse 9. No one born of God, he says, makes a practice of sinning. In other words, the issue is, were you born again or not? And then I can kind of assess your character here. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, there's no use 
in just trying to be righteous and renovate your behavior if you've not been born of God. The only true source of life and of forgiveness and of repentance and of righteousness and of morally upright conduct is if you've been united to Christ and if you've been born of God. Looking for it without those realities is pointless. You'll never find it. Saying God has to do something. The seed abides before the conduct follows. The new birth has happened, and then comes the new walk. Union with light comes first, and then we walk in the light as He is in the light. This is the order of the gospel. Being leads to doing. But if you flip those things, you'll become a legalist, and you'll become depressed, and you'll become discouraged, and you'll miss out on the whole meaning of the gospel and what it is that Jesus does for us and through us. God must first do a work, and then comes the proper conduct. We must be united to Him. Christians do not continue in sin because they have been born again and have been united to Christ. And let me just say, last word before leaving this point, I think some of us would have an easier time with this if we adjusted the way we talk about conversion. And here's what I mean by that. If becoming a Christian uh, in your nomenclature and vocabulary is nothing more than um, getting God in your life, you know, or, or I got to get right with God, um, you, you need more religion in you, uh, you, need to, you need to choose to become a Christian. That's, some of you are looking for this in your children right now, your adult children. And you're, you're confused because you're saying, well, they've said they're a Christian. They went to the youth group thing, but they're not living like a Christian. What I think will help you in trying to work out what John is saying here is to understand that what happens, what is involved in a person becoming a Christian is so much more than we often think. To become a Christian is to be born of the Spirit of God. It is so radical a thing, it is described as new birth. If anyone is in Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 21, he is a new creation. That's what you want to see in a lost person, that they would become a whole new person, not that they would just decide to get God in their life, whatever that means. Those who are truly Christians have been united to the Son of God. They've been born again by the power of God's Spirit. They have been pronounced righteous in the throne room of heaven. They are inheritors of everlasting life. They are the children of God. This is scriptural nomenclature, biblical language. If we begin to use that kind of language to describe what it means to be a Christian, well, then what John is saying won't sound so peculiar to us. How could we expect anything less than a changed heart and a changed life if we're talking about union with Christ instead of walking an aisle and praying a prayer, if we're talking about being born of God instead of getting God in your life, we'll come to expect much more in terms of the change that regeneration brings about in the heart of a person. That doesn't mean that fruits of conversion are never dim. I'm not saying that it's never hard to tell if a person is saved or not. But we should try to bring our thoughts about what conversion is into conformity with the categories God gives us in His Word. So there's so much greater that's going on than we often think. Okay, third and final point. 
We've seen Christians do not continue in sin. We've seen that John has argued, secondly, Christians do not continue in sin because they have been united to Christ. Thirdly, Christians do not continue in sin because the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Christians do not continue in sin because the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We're celebrating Advent, the coming of Christ in the world. But why did He come? Well, he, we have it served up for us on a platter here. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason you, Christian, live a holy life, the reason you are to fight your sin and to have ongoing victory over your sin is because the Son of God came to make it so. He came to bring an end of sin in your life. He came to shatter not only sin's guilt, but sin's power, sin's dominion in your life. It's not just that now you've been forgiven, it's that your life has changed, you begin to live differently. Because the Son of God appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared. What does that mean? It's not, I don't think John is saying you should think in terms of when like Jesus came into your life. The Son of God appeared doesn't mean like when did he appear to me. This is talking about a historic event. It's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. He appeared. He was manifest in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God at the proper time, at the end of the age, appeared. In human flesh, he came, he was manifest, he was incarnate. And John says, the Son of God appeared unto what purpose? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that's an awesome statement. What does it mean? Well, we've seen this at least a couple of times in the past few months, both in the summer and then in our series in Matthew. We recognize that in the Old Testament, at the fall, A prophecy was made, a promise was made. In the context of Adam and Eve's sin, the Lord promised, He actually said to the serpent, the devil, uh, that He, God, would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, would one day crush the serpent's head. He'd vanquish him. He'd conquer him. He'd subdue him. And we know that is, of course, talking about Jesus, who comes from the line of Eve. He would come, and He would shatter Satan's kingdom. And we saw this from a different angle. We considered Jesus' wilderness temptations in Matthew 4. Uh, there now Jesus comes for His first skirmish with Satan, at least recorded in Scripture. He's going to go mano y mano with Satan in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. He's there in the wilderness, and Satan comes to tempt Him. And we see there this initial victory that Jesus has over Satan. He must have victory over Satan if he's to be the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. And of course, the place where Satan is ultimately vanquished, where he's shattered and his kingdom is broken, is at the cross, where the Son of God, the seed of the woman, triumphs over Satan, shatters his kingdom, destroys his dominion over the children of men. What John is telling us now is that has implications not only for our initial redemption, but for our lives even now. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil in this passage? 
It's sins in the lives of people. It's active, continuous, ongoing sin. And the logic of John's argument is, do, do you know why it's sort of unthinkable and a contradiction to just continue on living in sin? Well, A, it's because you've been united to Christ, but also this is why Jesus came. This is why He appeared, so that you, Christian, would know victory over your sin in the here and now, so that all those monuments to Satan, those last vestiges of His rule in your heart, that they might be overcome, that His dominion would be toppled, that He would be vanquished, and that all His works in your life might be destroyed. Those of us outside of Christ are described as those who are of Satan. That is to say, He has dominion over us. What happens when a man or woman is born of God and united to Christ is that that kingdom is shattered. But in our hearts, because there's still sin in us, there's sort of these remaining outposts. I was reading on uh, Alexander the Great once. He sort of conquered a big metropolitan area, and you would consider the battle basically won, but then he had to send his forces out into the, the country and the hamlets and the hinterlands and all of that in order to squelch the remaining little outposts and rebellions that were going on in various regions. The battle was won, the city was taken, and yet there was this need to go out further and further and to squelch, to silence, to subdue every last vestige of rebellion. That's what this passage is talking about. The Son of God appeared, Christian, so that you would overcome your sin in an ongoing way. The dominion of sin is destroyed in your life The Son of God has appeared to destroy all the works of the devil, including remaining sin in me. Now, what does this mean for us? We're talking about Advent. We're talking about Christmas. We're talking about why the Son of God came and why He appeared. I want to apply this in a personal way to all of us here, okay? To false professors among us, that is, you profess to be a Christian, but you really are not manifest in your conduct and your behavior. Well, this text is mercifully given for your warning. Uh, So you would fit in that category of what is just living on in sin. You say you're a Christian, you say you've been born of God, that you've been united to Christ, that you're a follower of Jesus, all things that are true of every single person who is a Christian. You say those things are true of you, and yet, Nothing in your conduct and behavior demonstrates that. This text is given for your warning. Don't you know why Jesus came? Don't you know why He appeared? Like, like don't, don't you know what, what He came to do? He came to destroy all the works of the devil. How can you tolerate them? He came to shatter Satan's kingdom and His dominion. And you seem to be making a home for Satan's works, Satan's kingdom. Oh, friend, don't be deceived. By this we will know, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, how we live and how we walk. And I think God in mercy has given this text to you this morning for your warning. Don't be deceived. John says this, let no one deceive you. Don't make a pretense of knowing God. If you continue on in sin, living just as you did before whenever it was that you think you were converted, John in love wants to get this across to you. The reason the Son of God came, the reason Christmas happened, 
but so that Satan's dominion in your life might be toppled, it might be overcome. You may need to be united to Christ for the first time, to be born anew in truth. And you can do that by going to Christ in repentance and faith. Hypocrites are converted all the time. Go to Christ. I've been living a lie. I've been living in sin. I know, Jesus, you came to destroy the works of the devil in my life. I've made nothing of that. Sin still dominates my life. I still live for his kingdom. I still live for sin. I need to have that bondage shattered. I need you, Son of God, to free me. Come to Jesus, and he'll save you, and he'll destroy the works of Satan in your own life. The second kind of person I want to apply this text to is to the lost sinner here who so badly wants to come to Christ, and you want to see your sins forgiven, and you want to see Satan's bondage in your life broken. This is why the Son of God came. This is what we're celebrating in this Advent series, in the songs that we sing, and the concert that we'll have next Sunday night, what we'll celebrate together Christmas morning as we gather here. Jesus came to overcome sin in your life. He came to set captives free. He came for the sick. He came for sinners. He came to break Satan's teeth in his mouth such that you would no longer be in bondage to your sin. You think, Satan's got a hold on me. My sin's got a hold on me. I'm in bondage to him. I'm addicted. I can't change. Nothing can, can undo what is going on in my life. This is why Jesus came, friend. This is why Christ was born unto you for your deliverance for your redemption, to pay your price, and to cause you to be born again. Oh, this is good and happy news. If you're here this morning and you feel hopeless about your sins, my friend, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The final kind of person here this morning I'd like to apply this passage to, simply this statement at the end of verse 8 is to believers here, to Christians. Uh, this text is given to you for both your encouragement and your motivation. It is such a contradiction of what we believe as Christians to be hopeless about ongoing sin in our lives. The promise of God's Word is that the Lord is pleased to supply grace He's pleased to supply help. Don't you know he's ended Satan's dominion in your life? You don't have to obey him. You don't have to be a slave to your sins and your corruptions. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You don't need to keep on sinning. You don't need to be hopeless about your sin. You say, no, it's always been this way. My mom was like this. My dad was like this. This runs in the family. I'll never change. That's not a Christian attitude at all. Now, Christ comes to give us this hope-filled perspective that little by little, He changes us. He helps us. He beats back the influence of Satan and sin in our lives. That image should be helpful to you. The victory's won at Calvary. The city's been taken. And now the master's going out to all the little villages, and he's quelling the rebellion. You can think of that as sins in your own life. Last little holdouts. I still struggle with this. I, I find I have this remaining struggle. Maybe it's dipping back into pornography, or maybe it's 
uh, struggles with a latent bitterness and anger. You find yourself lashing out. And I thought that was totally gone, but I still have it with me. It might be that you use your tongue in ways that you used to as a non-Christian. You want to see it overcome. The encouragement to you this morning is that the Son of God came to destroy exactly those things in your life, to extinguish them, destroy the works of the devil. And this encouragement then becomes a motivation to us. I'll just say this has been personally helpful to me this week uh, as I struggle with remaining sin in my own life, besetting sins, patterns of sin that I want to see overcome. I've been helped and motivated to think this is why, this is why Christ was born. This is why He came into the world, for this very struggle that I feel, and subdue all the work and activity of Satan in my life, uh, to subdue sin's power at work within me. And I can have hope and motivation. I should continue. I should fight because the Lord is on my side, because the gospel teaches me, the incarnation of the Son of God teaches me that this is the reason why He's come, that we Christians might have ongoing victory, increasing victory over our sins because Jesus has had the victory. This is why He came to overcome, to destroy the works of the devil. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the blessings of the coming of Your Son into the world are numerous. They're manifest in Your Word. In Him we have life, in Him we have redemption. He has been to us justification and righteousness, and He has been to us also sanctification and wisdom to know how to walk and how to live. We pray, Father, that through vital union and communion with Christ, through the new birth and the new spirit that you supply, that we all would honor you and experience more joy in our lives and more freedom in our lives through the ongoing work of sanctification, that we would serve you and honor you through seeing sin increasingly subdued in our lives. We know that this is why your son came, so that all the works of the devil would be destroyed. Oh, we pray, Father, that you would help each one of us, that this would bring to us encouragement, uh, that you can do such a work in our lives so as to change us and to help us, to cause us to walk in righteousness. We know this is pleasing to you. We want to walk in righteousness even as he is righteous, to walk in the light even as he is in the light, and that you have done all to make it so. You have furnished us with every motivation and every power and every encouragement and every impulse to see sin defeated in our lives and to see righteousness and life realized. Oh, Father, please help us in this. And Father, we pray this morning for any here who feel that sin's bondage is too great that its oppression is so heavy that it feels like a noose tied around their neck. Father, please show them that they can change, that their sins can be forgiven, and that whatever it is in this life that has a hold on us, we can be loosed and freed to follow You in righteousness and in faith. Oh, please, Lord, destroy every last vestige of Satan's work within us.
uh, topple every stronghold and monument to sin in our lives. Through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.